we're going to take time here at the beginning of this new year to consider afresh what is the vision of our church. It's, it's something that's important to consider if we've never considered it before in our own personal lives. What are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish? What are we hoping that would be true of us? But even if it's something that we've done, and, and most of you are experiencing this, it's always good to check in again and say, how are we doing? And every time a new year comes for us and, and one ends and another one starts, we can think back and say, okay, so of all those commitments that we made last year at the beginning of the year, how did we do? You know, what we said at the beginning of last year, it's a fresh start. We're going to try to maybe do more of this or do more of that or experience more of, of something. And we can look back and, and almost get discouraged and, and we find that some things just keep coming on our list in a recurring way. One, because we need them in an ongoing way, but also sometimes because we struggle and we, we fail with them. And so when we gather together here now at the beginning of the new year, this, the first Sunday of 2012, and then the next couple, we're actually going to consider afresh as a church, what do we mean when we say we're here to love God, to care for all people, and to communicate his word? Why, why do we use that language? What does that mean? And how are we doing if that really is the mission that we're seeking to accomplish? And we're going to do that by turning to a book in the Bible called 2 Thessalonians, which you'll find on page 989. And one of the encouraging things for me just in looking at this letter is that it's the second letter that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. And much of what he says in this letter is material that he already told them in 1 Thessalonians. And so they, like us, need to hear some things multiple times for it to really sink in, for us to really get it and to own it as our own. We need to hear it again and again until it becomes ours, until we can speak the message, until we can speak the vision and the goal and the mission that we have. And so Paul, even though he had written them not too much before, takes the time to write them again. And the series, the title of it, is called Unshaken, A Vision for Our Time. And that comes from the language in in chapter 2, which is where we're going to see it next week, where Paul looks at them and he says he doesn't want any of them to be shaken or easily alarmed. He wants them to be strong in their faith, confident in the things that they believe, going forward with all that God has for them with strength. And he wants them to be unshaken. And we'll see how he wants them to be unshaken in their worship, in their witness, and in their work. And today we're going to see how he talks about being unshaken in their worship of God. But this is the message that he wants to share with them as he looks to them and maybe they're experiencing a time of doubt, a time of alarm, a time of concern, and a time of shaking. But before we get too far, it might be helpful to define the words that we're using. When we say vision, what do we mean? What is a vision? It's helpful in one definition that I saw to add on to the end of it an A-R-Y. What is a visionary? What is someone who has vision? And when you put that together, you say that, you know, a, a visionary is someone who can see what is possible. Vision is about seeing what is possible. Some of you can look into this year already 
And you can think about March, you can think about May, you can think about August, and you can see something that's possible. Something that you're looking forward to, something that you're excited about that's going to happen. You believe it's possible, and you can see it. Well, the moment we start to think in those terms and in our own personal lives, the question that we're asking is, well, what's possible for whom? What's possible for whom? If I'm thinking about it just in terms of my own life, what is possible for me to accomplish in the next year? That's going to be fairly limited. If I think about what's possible for you and me to accomplish, that gets a little bit bigger. And then if it's not just two of us, but if it's five of us or ten of us, that gets bigger. But then if we ask the question, not what's possible for even all of us together, but what's possible for God? What is possible for God to do in this year in our lives? And what's possible for God, and therefore God's vision, is always bigger than ours. See, if you were to ask me, do you think this year you can change anybody's heart? And say, no. I haven't had that ability up to this point, and I don't think I'll ever gain that ability. I do not know how to change another person's heart. Can we all together figure out how to do that? No. We can't. But if I asked, can God change somebody's heart? Oh, absolutely he can. He can change anybody's heart. Oh, so it's possible, if we're thinking about it from God's perspective, for hearts to be changed, for lives to be transformed. Well, it is. And then the question for us is, well, are we going to move forward and press on trying to do all the things that we think we can do and that are within our power? Or are we going to grab a vision about what God says is possible? what he can make happen, and then to get involved and be a part of what it is that he is trying to do. And here, Paul is now writing to a church, trying to give them a vision of what is possible for God to do in their lives. So if you'll look now and follow along as we read from page, on page 989, all of chapter 1. This is what Paul says that God can do. Paul, Silvinus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those 
who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This will conclude our reading for today. So vision, seeing what is possible. Well, to have an idea of where we're going or what can happen, we have to get a, a sense of where we are right now. To know how to get where we're trying to go, we have to have a sense of where we are right now. And so Paul opens his letter and he addresses it to a specific group of people, to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, I think I have a sense of most everybody who's here, and I don't think anybody came from Thessalonica today. So this wasn't written to you or me, and that's actually true of all the Bible. It wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. It's written down so that we can now look at it, but we're not the first people that got to see this. So we have to do a little bit of work to say, well, where were they at? What, what, where is Thessalonica? What would life have been like for people in that time for, for it to make sense what Paul is trying to describe to them in a vision that he has of all that God is seeking to accomplish, it's helpful for us to understand where they're at. And there's actually a couple of characteristics that I just want to highlight for you really briefly about where they're at. And for those of you who remember when we went through 1 Thessalonians, this, this comes from the work that we did there, starting in Acts and then looking in 1 Thessalonians. But this was a place that was politically independent Thessalonica was what was called at that time a free city. They had grown large enough and behaved long enough that they were given a good amount of independence. They were kind of in the center of the empire at that time. And so a lot of the conflict and a lot of the wars that were going on were going on in the fringes. They were going on in the exterior. And they were kind of closed inside in the middle, fairly protected, not really worried about impending battles or wars, and so they enjoyed a lot of freedom. They were allowed to make laws that just they themselves together in their own city could, could come up to. They were still connected to Rome, but they had a lot of freedom to do what they want, how they wanted. Culturally, they were progressive. If you, especially uh, a woman living in that time, were trying to think of a place that you could live in the first century and have a chance of maybe even accumulating your own sense of position or power or wealth, this would have been one of the great places to be. There was opportunities for you to grow and for you to advance, whether you were a man or a woman. 
And we see that in Acts 17 when Paul actually comes to the city and he gets a lot of converts. It says that a lot of the initial converts were leading Greek women in the town who were interested in what Paul was saying and who committed themselves to become a part of the church. They were a port city and so they were economically progressive or economically prosperous. This was a place where business was happening. People came here to to sell their products, to provide services, but it was a busy town where free from the threat of war, but right in route of trade in the first century, this was a place where you could make it. This is a place where you could make a living, where you had a chance to get ahead and to raise up maybe economically from where you started. And if you and I were to walk in there and we were to ask ourselves, is this place spiritual? We would have said, oh yeah, it's spiritually vibrant. There are gods everywhere. I mean, there's the, they make these things called gods and, and they're all over the place. And they know how to celebrate these gods. They have week-long parties celebrating these gods that they worship. There's festivals all the time. If you want to be in a party town, this is a great place to be. They don't just take one night to celebrate the new year. I mean, this is, this is days-long, weeks-long celebration that goes on. But what's fascinating is that even though all of these things were true, it is possible to have all of this, to have freedom, to have opportunities for progress, to have a great and successful business, and to be active spiritually, it is possible to have all of this and still have no hope. That's what Paul thought when he got there. He walked around and he saw all of these things and he said, they've they've got this. They've got opportunity. They've got freedom. They've got money, but they don't have hope. Everything they have is is, is a temporary thing. It's something that's going to pass away. It's something that's going to fade away. So that when he came to the city, and even though he saw all of these good things, he didn't say to himself, oh, they have it all together. I'm going to go to another town that, that really needs the gospel. No, from Paul's perspective, This town, this city, needed the gospel just like any other city. If anything, maybe they needed to hear the message a little bit more because one of the dangers that happens when we get to enjoy all of these other things is that we in our own minds make this jump that if we have freedom and if we have a good, successful life, we must be doing well in our relationship with God. It's so easy for us to make those one and the same thing. And so Paul, knowing that, says, no, this is a place that needs to hear the truth about who God is and that all of this stuff that is temporary, that's passing away, they need to find something that is eternal and something that lasts. Because Paul knew what the message of Jesus was and wasn't it Jesus in Matthew 16, 26, who to all of his disciples said, it is possible to gain the whole world and lose your soul. Jesus put it in the form of a question. We're just putting it in the form of a statement. 
But from God's perspective, what he sees as possible is that it is possible for you and for me to gain the whole world, but to forfeit and to lose our life and our soul along the way. That's possible. It is possible for us to think about what we're trying to do and all that we're trying to accomplish and to get so consumed by it that we pursue it in such a way that we let go of God. That what we really want is the success. That what we really want is the freedom. And so we let go of the things that are eternal and the things that matter most. So Paul realizes that, that it's possible to have all of these things and to still have no hope. But then Jesus, what he does is he then turns the phrase and says, but it it therefore is also possible to have hope even when you don't have any of these other things. It's possible to lose all of those things, to lose your life and gain your soul. And that's now what what Paul wants each and every one of these believers in this town to experience because for them living in this town, joining the church meant that they started to lose some of these things. They started to lose some of their freedoms. They started to lose some of their business partners. They stopped getting invited to the week-long party festivals where they were worshiping the other gods because they were the annoying people who were insisting there's only one God. And so after a couple of months and then maybe a couple of years saying, wait a minute, when we, were, when we didn't know about God, we had all of these opportunities and now we're committing to following God to to having a relationship with him and we're not enjoying these things anymore. Life has actually become a little bit more complicated since God came into the picture. It's become a little bit more difficult since God came into the picture. Maybe we didn't hear the message right. (laughs) Maybe something got lost in the communication of, of what it is that we're supposed to believe or what it is that we're supposed to do And so Paul getting reports now because he's no longer with them and one of the reports that he's getting is that they're alarmed. They're shaken. Are we really? Are are we really on the right path? Are we really doing what we're supposed to be doing? And so he he writes to them longing for them to have their perspective so changed about what matters most that they would be unshaken in their worship. And so the first thing he does in verse 3 is he lifts them up. These people who are alarmed, who are nervous, who are wondering if anybody cares and if anybody knows them, he lifts them up. Look at at verses 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. 
You see, what they're feeling in terms of shame and maybe separation or isolation in their own city, Paul wants them to know he's bragging about them all over the place. And every chance he gets, he's thanking God for who they are and for what they're doing. He's encouraging them. It was interesting. I one time when I was uh, leading the youth group, I had, uh, and we could we could mimic it today, but everybody would have to uh, to get up and move around a little bit too much, and the, the pews kind of block fast movement. But you get people to stand on one side of the room, and you ask them a question. You give them two options, and if the option is this one, you walk over here, and if it's this one, you walk over here. And so you don't use your words; you just use your feet. But you say, okay, if you like Coke, stand over here, and if you like Pepsi, stand over here. If you like the idea of going to the beach, stand over here. If you like the idea of going to a big city, stand over here. And people just go back and forth. And it's usually pretty split because, you know, not everybody has the same taste or finds the same enjoyment. But when I ask the question, if you would rather receive a gift, stand over here, or receive a compliment, stand over here, everybody walked over to receive a compliment. Not one person stayed and said they'd rather receive a gift instead of a compliment. The power of encouragement in our lives is amazing. And Paul is using his words to lift up these people who are alarmed and they're shaken. He wants them to know that though they might not feel it immediately in their own town, There are praises and prayers going up to heaven, thanking God for who they are and for what they're doing. And he's boasting about them to other people and in other churches because of what's going on. And and here's now the content of what he's boasting, that they are people who are growing in faith. That's the first thing he points out. Their faith is growing abundantly. And he's excited about that. In all their persecutions and all the suffering that they're experiencing, they are growing in their faith. I wonder if for you that is even uh, in your ideas of what's possible. Is it possible for you to grow in your faith? Or do you think your faith is about as strong as as it's going to be? You know about as much of the Bible as you're going to know. You know about as much as you're going to know in terms of a relationship with God as you're going to know. Well, for for Paul, what he's excited about is that their faith is growing. And, And he believes that's possible, that from God's perspective, the relationship that he has with us can grow. That this isn't the the best that it gets. It's a start and it's a beginning. But we can actually know God relationally more with each passing day and each passing experience than we do right now. And he's excited for them, that their faith is growing. And some of us, I know that this was true of me personally, and so I just wouldn't be surprised if there was anybody else in the room who thought it, but that when you became a Christian, that was the strongest you could get. You know, that was the best. And then your goal for the rest of your life is just to maintain that. Just try not to mess that up. But you're about as far along as you're going to get when you accept Christ and when you become a Christian. 
And for the New Testament, that, that doesn't make any sense. It is no. You, when you become a Christian, you, you, it describes us as, a, as babes in Christ and that we grow as children and then we grow into the fullness of adulthood and then we grow in helping other people become children and helping them grow up to become adults. And, but it's always growing. Continuing, pressing forward, learning and experiencing more of God just like we would of any relationship. And it's true, we know this in our own personal relationships, that the longer we're with someone, we can grow to love them more. doesn't mean we didn't love them honestly and sincerely before. But our ability to love one another with each passing day grows as we get to know more about each other. And so he's excited that their faith is growing and that their love is increasing. And notice how their love is directed. See, their faith in God is growing. But for Paul, there's always two things that go together. If our faith is growing, then our love for each other should be growing. And we shouldn't think our faith is growing if our love for one another is not growing. If I have less patience for you than I did before, I shouldn't then think I'm closer to God. If I'm closer to God, I should have more patience. If I'm closer to God, I should have more love. I should have a more willingness to sacrifice, to to serve and to give. And so Paul wants us to keep those two things together. Grow closer to God, but know that as you're growing closer to him, he wants you growing closer to the people that are around you. He wants you loving them better and better with each passing day. And that's going on in this church. That's going on in the lives of these people. They are growing in their faith and they are increasing in their love. And then third, they are enduring in their strength and suffering. This is what he says in verse 4. We boast about you because of the steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in your afflictions that you are enduring. They're growing in their strength. They're enduring. Some people, the moment life gets hard, the moment there becomes a cost, they go. They're gone. You don't see them anymore. But for these believers, they're holding tight, they're staying strong, and they're growing in their strength. They're enduring. And then what Paul does is he frames all of this in light of what is going to happen for each and every one of us. And he describes the reality of Judgment Day. And when he looks on these people who are experiencing suffering right now, who are a little bit shaken and a little bit nervous, he says to them, you are going to one day experience everlasting peace. Everlasting peace with God. He says, right now you're feeling affliction, but I want to tell you that there's going to come a time when everything is turned upside down and the people who are afflicting you will no longer be able to afflict you and they will stand in judgment before God and the suffering that you will experience, you will no longer experience. And if we can keep that in mind, we can recommit ourselves to following and to serving him. That every experience of suffering we have, no matter how bad it is, we can look and if we are in Christ, we can say, 
This is a reminder that I will not suffer forever. This pain, this hurt, reminds me of how great it is that my Heavenly Father loved me enough that He made it possible for me to not feel this forever. Because that's what's at stake. The awfulness, the emptiness, the despair, the alarm, the concern. That for some, that will go on. That they haven't put themselves in Christ. They haven't embraced and accepted an offer that he makes to them freely that he would receive that pain, that he would receive that suffering so that they would never have to experience it forever. And so when we think about, you know, what event could take place in a coming year that would be the most significant event, the answer of the Bible is always the same. There is a day that will change every day. There's a last day. And that last day changes every day we now live. You and I, every one of us individually, will stand before our maker. One of the things that we're actually doing when we get together at a church on a Sunday is to remind ourselves of that. We believe that God is always with us. And so everywhere we go, we can interact with him and we can relate to him. But if we're honest, we're not always focusing on him, right? (laughs) He's not always at the forefront of our mind. So part of what we're doing when we get together is this sense of we're focusing. We're standing before him. And we're reminding ourselves that we're going to do that one day directly. We are going to stand before him and give an account for everything that we've done for everything that we've said and everything that we believe. And that event is possible this year. If it's not, if it doesn't happen for all of us at the same time, it's possible for each of us individually. And when we really take the time to think about it, we know it because we know of people who in this last year, who we loved and cared for, who are no longer with us. They did not make it to January 1st, 2012. And so many of us are sitting here and we really believe that we're going to make it to January 2nd. Most of us believe that. But none of us know that. And if we can keep in mind what Paul is saying, that there is coming this day, this great day, where all of us will give an account before our maker, it frames our priorities, our commitments, and the things that we want to see happen in our own life in this day. And there's this offer for us to experience this everlasting peace. And so for Paul, he then, this, this frames the way he prays. To this end, in verse 11, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified for you. 
when we put these two lists together of all that is true of the city of Thessalonica and all that Paul is describing that God believes is possible, God's vision is the person that you and I will become. You see, the first list of, being, of the city having independence and, and prosperity and being progressive, those are all things that are done, that we do, that we make happen. And the second list about growing in faith and increasing in love and enduring in strength and having everlasting peace is about who we are. And God cares much more about who you become than what you do. God cares much more about who you and I become than about what we do. And because he sees what's possible, that you and I could actually become like his son, that's what he's working out, that's what he's seeking to make happen, then he sees that it's possible for you and for me to be the kind of people who are unshaken in our worship. God believes that it's possible for you and for me to have a kind of faith that's so connected to him so deep in him that whatever happens, we will continue to worship him. We will continue to praise him. We will continue to love him. That we will be unshaken in our worship. Keeping in mind that ultimate end, that ultimate day, when we will stand before him. And so he believes things about ourselves that are bigger than us. (laughs) Our prayers often reveal what we believe. Oh God, if you'll just do this, then I'll do this. And if you'll just do this, I'll do that. And he says, I want you to know me so personally, so intimately, so deeply, that even when those things don't happen, you still serve me, you still love me, and you still worship me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a new year, an opportunity in this time to think, to focus, to reflect. And we confess that in in much of our thinking, we don't remember the truths of your word. We don't remember the reality of all that you've done for us. The truth that we will stand before you and that the people that we love will stand before you. But we pray in the clarity of a a Sunday morning removed from other distractions that you would give us a vision of what is possible for you of what is possible for you to do in our hearts and of what is possible for you to do as we work together under you to reach out to others. You make beautiful things out of dust. You make beautiful things out of us. And so we pray that you would work Amen.